This is the Baywall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we listen in on the restoration of Peter and consider the conclusion that John writes for his gospel account. We've made it to the end, Brent, verse by verse through the gospel of John. It's a good accomplishment. We, as a greater Bayma team, this has been a group effort. And it's been, boy, that part of it's been super nice, having other teaching team members be able to take passages and reduce the load of my own expectations. It's been, and man, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm kind of biased, but their episodes are the best episodes of this series. I mean, <laughs> Elle and Josh and Reed, I, I feel like those episodes have been the ones that, they're just so good. Um, and that, you know, I don't feel bad about my own episodes. I got some good things to say, but man, their stuff is good. So good. And like, as we were planning it out, I did suggest like, Hey, if more than one person wants to cover a particular chunk, like that's totally cool. And it didn't seem like anyone was going to bite on that idea. But then Josh, you know, gave us a couple extra episodes on John six, which was awesome. Yep. So, and we reserve the right to come back and cover any portion of John a second time. Some other time. We sure do. We sure do. Um, Okay, here's what I want to do today, Brent. This passage, boy, do people love to email me about this passage. (laughs) I get a lot of messages about this. So I'm going to try to cover it all. Like I'm going to try to cover all the things so that we can all save the messages and the emails. I think there will be one point I'm actually going to ask for messages, some Slack discussions, some emails, far be it from me to request such things. But I'm going to try to probably hit all the things that everybody loves to talk about in this passage. So here's what I want to do, Brent. I want to have you read the whole passage. So it's, we've done every verse. It's on the table in front of us. And we're just probably going to, we might dive back into the passage here and there, but I just want to be able to look at it from a 30,000 foot perspective from about 14 different angles. And uh, we'll just try to cover all the things. So how about you read the passage in question? And actually, I want to I want to recover one extra verse from uh, the previous episode. I want to do verse 14 is where I want to start because I feel like this detail might be important. I'm not really sure, but I just, just feels like, Ooh, Oh, look at that. Look at you. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. All right, there you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I, man, so many things. Let's start where you started, Brent. You started by picking up verse 14. I'm assuming because of the reference to the third time. Am I correct? Yeah, and I don't know if that's necessarily significant, but, you know, we do have a theme going on here. Yeah, and that's one of the things I would start with, is, is these patterns of threes that everybody uh, notices, I think appropriately so. I didn't even think about this one. There are three threes that jump out to me that I would think, I don't know if I would say for sure are connected, but you have obviously the three denials of Peter. And now you have these three reinstatements, like these three restoration statements. So you had three failures and now three forgivenesses. Those That would appear to me to be um, relevant and linked. Um, and you even have like that parenthetical verse there towards the end of the passage. <laughs> it's talking about John. It's like, this is the disciple that leaned back um, you know, and ask the question about who was going to betray Jesus, you know, wink, wink, like you, Peter. Um, so <laughs> poor guy, <laughs> it, it feels like it feels like these stories, like Peter's had three magnificent failures that I'm sure he'd love to. In fact, this whole story, he's even like fishing. He's fishing like I, I have for a sermon I was just getting ready to do this week, Brent. I just I just kind of went through and I took all the post-resurrection Jesus stories, and I kind of mapped out my own timeline. It's been years. I, I need to do that. I sat down and I did it this last week. Like what I believe, if I harmonize, if you will, if I harmonize the gospel accounts, the book of Acts, and even a reference in you know, the letter of Corinthians, these resurrection appearances, what is my take, my own personal take of how these things are fleshing themselves out? And and so you have like, so let me walk through it real quick. You have you have Mary who goes and sees the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, end of John chapter 20. And she she runs back and finds Peter and John. As I read it, they're not hiding at that point. It doesn't say that they're hiding behind a locked door. Or they're in the upper room with the doors locked. At, at that point, it just seems they're, she just goes and finds them. They run to the tomb. They seem that the tomb is empty. Nobody. They go back. And as I read it, that's when they all of a sudden go, the disciples that are there, they go and they lock the door. And and obviously for good reason, you didn't take the body. You know that you didn't take the body, but you know that everybody's going to accuse you of taking the body. So now you're scared for your own life and safety. So you go hide yourself in the upper room. Mary then goes back to the tomb. She then has a vision of Jesus, not a vision, excuse me, not a vision. She, she meets the resurrected Christ. And then uh, he tells her to go tell the disciples. So she goes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, when you put that together with Matthew's account, he tells her not just go tell the disciples that they've seen, that that she's seen him, but go tell the disciples and Peter. And why does Jesus make that distinction? I think, in my mind, it's because Mary's not even, like, Peter has denied Jesus. Peter's not like, we don't catch the gravity. We, we talked about this in session three. You can even link the episode uh, the final week betrayal, whatever episode that is, Brent. Um, you can put that in the show notes. Yeah, that'll be uh, episode 131. 131. And and so we talk about like the gravity of what Peter's done. I, I don't think Mary's going to associate Peter as a disciple. He's, he's, 
He's resigned. He's gone his own way. He's denied the rabbi, the ultimate betrayal. So Peter's apparently now the the Gospel of John never puts Peter in the upper room where Jesus shows up and says, "Touch my hands, put my." He's not there. He's not there when Thomas is there a week later. So I've one like he maybe he was there, but I almost read this chapter and I almost think to myself. He's not hanging with the disciples because he, some of the disciples are with him in the Galilee and he's fishing. And so I don't know if they go kind of like, they go to get Peter on their way to the mountain where the Great Commission happens. Like I can't imagine Peter not being on the mountain for the Great Commission, but I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But they go and they get Peter on the way to the mountain in Galilee where the Great Commission happens. Then from the Great Commission, they go back down to Jerusalem where the ascension happens. Ten days later, they're at Pentecost. That, that's our timeline here. So Peter, and you and, and you guys can all disagree with me, I, I'm not sure, I think this is the first time Peter's seen the resurrected Jesus. And I imagine he is still reeling from one of the greatest regrets he's ever had, this three-part denial of knowing Jesus. And now he gets a three-part restoration. Um, we also have another three-part story from a different author in the book of Acts. Can you remember what three-part story, what other three-occurrence situation do we have, Brent? Uh, well, Peter, Peter's instance with the sheet. That's right. The sheet that comes down out of heaven with a bunch of unclean food, rise, kill, and eat, that whole story. So you get these, particularly with Peter, you get these stories of like threeness, like three events, three events, three events. So I, I, I think there's something there. Is there even more threeness taking place. This is the third time he's appeared to his disciples, which which now that you say that, Brent, I think that's, in my mind, I think that's uh, good evidence for my own theory here, because he's appeared to them once in the upper room. Yeah, I wish I'd thought about this before we started, <laughs> because I now I'm thinking like, but was he, was Peter there every single time? Yep. Did Peter get other, like, I'm just thinking through all the possible. And he could have been, but as I put the details together, I don't think he is. I think this is the time. This is the time where he sees the resurrected Christ for the first time. I could be wrong. You could totally see it differently. That's okay. You don't have to email me and tell me that I'm wrong. You can just think that I'm wrong and and you can keep that to yourself. That'd be great. Um, that, that was me trying to be funny. Uh, so, so you have that. Ha, ha, ha. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a little late on the left. So so you have the threeness. Okay, let's deal with another another one of the 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 common emails that I get. Um well, the Greek words that are used here aren't cuz we're about ready to dive into the whole Greek words debate and discussion here, Brent. That's where we're headed. Spoiler alert. And some people like love to email and they love to say like, "Okay, but this conversation he wouldn't have been speaking in Greek, so it's irrelevant." Okay. I totally agree he would not be speaking in Greek. Absolutely not. The debate is going to be between Aramaic and Hebrew. I'm going to say Hebrew. Most scholars are going to say Aramaic. I believe he's going to be speaking in Hebrew. But actually, I would say what he's speaking is irrelevant because the inspired word of God, as John writes it, is in Greek. Unless it was originally written in Hebrew, and there are some that have argued that. But John writes it in Greek, and so John is trying to, in an inspired, authoritative way, tell us through the Greek language, I assume, what's going on in the conversation. So John is using Greek. So whatever choices John is making, they're inspired choices, and those choices in the Greek language do matter. Not that Jesus is speaking Greek. We're not saying that. Jesus would not have been speaking Greek. But John records the conversation in Greek. And in doing so, is John able to communicate in an inspired way with authority 
what the tone, what the intended meaning, what all those all those things that were spoken in the Hebrew, is he able to communicate what's really going on in the conversation by using the Greek? I think so. And e- even even if you step back from the inspired portion of this, we know John's following them. So just in a in a basic like observational way, he's going to know the tone and he's going to see the emotions. He's going to see the shoulder slump when Jesus asked the third time. Absolutely. You know, he's going to he's going to have that baseline even without and obviously we do believe it's inspired and that God is working through John's words here, but uh, even without that, I think just any observer would have been able to see more or less what was going on here. 100%. Brent, couldn't have loved your feedback any more than just now. Loved it. <laughs> All right, so let, let's dive into, let's pull apart this whole debate. And it is a, it is a debate, and it's a good one. I, I don't think, I have a strong opinion, but I don't think it's easy to know what the opinion should be here. This is a This is a pretty good debate going on here. So as John writes the story. Now, first of all, let's talk about the different words for love. Most of us, if we grew up in the church, we at some point were at a youth group lesson where some youth pastor did the lesson about the different Greek words for love. And can you remember what some of them are, Brent? Uh, The Greek are agape, phileo, and eros. Eros. So those are three uh, options for love. Eros is like the erotic love. It's where we actually, it's it's the word where we get erotic, eros love. It's sexual love. And then um, sexual erotic love, I should say. And then you have phileo, which what do you what have you been taught about that, Brent? Uh, that's like a brotherly love. Yeah, brotherly love. And then you were also taught about agape, and a lot of churches have the name agape faith community or whatever. What does agape mean, as we were told in our youth groups? Uh, that is an unconditional love. And I'm also going to search for agape faith community and see if there's a specific church who's going to be like, what? <laughs> well, there's a lot of them out there. I grew up around in more than one. Um, but so, so yes, the agape is like this godly, divine, unconditional love. And that was always taught to me. And that was taught to me like just straightforward. This is just pure Greek uh, you know, linguistics, like th- this is just true. This is just word study. Like this is just straightforward. Turns out it's not that straightforward. There's a huge academic debate about whether or not there's a distinction, especially in New Testament usage. The two words in, at play that concern us here are phileo and agape. Is there a difference between phileo and agape? And there's a ton of debate about whether or not that's true. Now, let's assume, I'm going to have you read a note that you have in the NET here in just a moment, Brent, but let's just assume that what we were taught earlier, let's run with that line of thinking first and see what it does to the conversation. So Jesus is here. He's talking to Peter. He says, Peter, do uh, you love me? And what is the word that he uses there in the first question? Agape. So Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says what? He says, phileo. You know that I... Phileo you. So so if there's something going on here, it seems that Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And I and I, and I hear Peter through uh, a bunch of guilt and uh, a little self-condemnation, saying, You know that I you know that I phileo you. You know that I I I, I like you. It's not a good translation, but I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna use that word. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I like you. And then Jesus responds with, feed. Feed my lambs, which is Arnia. Okay. Arnia. I don't know how you said it. Okay, Arnia. Okay, so, and then 
What's the next question? Peter? Do you agape me? Do you agape me? What is Peter's response? Of course, you know I phileo you. Okay, so if there's something going on here, it would seem that Jesus is saying, Jesus, do you love me? Or excuse me, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Jesus, you know I like you. Yeah, but Peter, do you love me? You know I like you. Then what's the third question? Jesus says, do you phileo me? Peter, do you even like me? And what does Peter say? Or actually, read the verse, because I feel like it makes a whole lot more sense in this context. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? What's the word that's used there, by the way? Uh, Yeah, I just better double check that. I don't think it matters necessarily, but I am curious. It is phileo there as well. Oh, my goodness gracious. See, I think, oh, man, that feels like that makes my point. But nevertheless... I digress. You can disagree with me. So so Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him on the third time, not do you agape me, but do you phileo me? Do you even like me? Yeah, it's it's not that he asked him for a third time, do you love me? It is specifically he asked him on the third time, do you phileo me, which is what Peter's been saying this whole time. Right. And now Peter's like, oh, you're... so now Jesus recognizes and names potentially what Peter's been wrestling with. I know I don't agape you. And Jesus is like, yeah, but do you even do you even phileo me? And Peter says, he's hurt. And then go ahead and finish that verse. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then you pointed out, and I don't have anything profound to say about this, Brent, but you pointed out that even the lambs and the sheep changes. What's the order of usage there? Yeah, so, and, and this we can see in the English. It is lambs, which is arnia, the first okay. time. And then the second and third times, are both sheep, which is probata. Probata. Okay. So even that, and I don't have anything like profound. I've worked on this for years. I don't have a, a ton of, like I could, I could make up some stuff, um, like just some logical Greek Western leaps on what he's trying to say between lambs and sheep that, that anybody could make. I, I just don't, I don't, I don't have any great insight there. So if anybody wants to get, you know, on the Slack channels and offer their, their thoughts or, you know, send me the, the email or the message even that, Here's your insight on the lambs versus the sheep conversation. I just don't have any big insight there. What I am curious about is the whole phileo agape thing. That conversation to me makes a ton of sense. Now, I I know a bunch of people are already crafting their emails, and they're already sending them to me, and they're saying, Marty, those Greek terms are used interchangeably, and so how about we actually look at the long any it's gonna be longer than our bible passage today give us the net footnote that you found for this brent let's just kind of pick this apart bit by bit and you'll i totally respect this footnote totally respect this footnote i completely disagree with most of what this footnote is going to say but i completely respect it so don't let me communicate anything different but brent go ahead so the footnote is there a significant difference in meaning between the two words for love used in the passage aside from origin who saw a distinction in the meaning of the two words. By the way, Origen, one of my fam- one of my favorite early church fathers, I realized he was declared a heretic later. Origen often was trying to argue for a more Jewish perspective on how they read the scriptures. I feel like Origen was the early church father that was trying to hold on to their Jewish root as Christianity became more and more and more anti-Semitic. So Origin is one of my favorites, and he happens to agree with me. I'm just pointing it out. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, most of the Greek fathers, like Chris, Chrysostom, I don't know how to say any of these names, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, saw no difference in meaning. 
Neither did Augustine nor the translators of the Italo, which is the old Latin. Uh, I assume that predates the the Vulgate that is that was common in. I yes, I think so. You caught me off guard, but I think so. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this was also the view of the Reformation Greek scholars Erasmus and Grotius. I don't know anything about Grotius, but Erasmus I think was working in like the 13th century or something. Yep. Um, the suggestion that a distinction in meaning should be seen comes primarily from a number of British scholars of the 19th century, Trench, Westcott, Plummer, especially. Uh, it has been picked up by others, uh, a whole list of names there. But most modern scholars decline to see a real difference in the meaning of the two words in this context, among them another long list of names. Uh, there are three significant reasons for seeing no real difference in the meaning uh, in these verses. Right, let's pick these apart one by one. Point number one. The author has a habit of introducing slight stylistic variations in repeated material without any significant difference in meaning. I And you're going to give us a bunch of examples here. I, I'm going to say that's pretty arbitrary of a conclusion and a statement to make. Here's one of my biggest pushes, pushbacks against this. So these words are used interchangeably. So John just willy-nilly decides to, like John knows how to use the word phileo, but he doesn't want it. He just stylistically wants to, that makes no sense to me. Not in his style, not in just Greek usage, or it just makes no sense to me that John knows how to use the word phileo and just kind of out of nowhere decides to use agape here and change halfway through because he just wants to change it up. Like, that makes no sense to me. It would make more sense to me. Like, I'm okay if he wants to use phileo in this story and agape in another story and phileo in another story and use them interchangeably. Okay, but in the same story, you're using two separate words because apparently he just doesn't know any better. Like, I I just have a super hard time saying there's no distinction when the author clearly chose to use two separate words. If he didn't want there to be a distinction, just use the same word. Um, and I know I'm no scholar. I'm not nearly as smart as all the names that are on that list that you didn't read. But that just seems to me like nonsense. But nevertheless, I digress. Go ahead. Yeah. So the examples that they put forth are uh, an interchange in chapter three, verses three and five, uh, which in that case, it's like, well, this is the same story. So you'd think if they're using different words, that would be an important distinction. Uh and then also chapter 7, 34, and then chapter 13, 33, um, you know, and those are completely different stories with completely different contexts. So it's like, okay, it, it almost seems like their examples are working against them. And each one of these has like a category with it where it's like uh, how, how God loves the world. And then... Oh, that, the next... that's coming later. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so an examination of the uses of these two words in the fourth gospel seems to indicate a general interchangeability between the two. Emphasis okay. added on general. Okay. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Both terms are used of God's love for man. You see that in 316 and 1627. Uh, you see both terms in the father's love for the son, as in Jesus, in 335 and 520. You see both used for Jesus's love for men in 11.3 and 11.5, which that's, you know, another like uh -huh. yep. same story, a couple of verses apart. It yep. seems like maybe there is a distinction there. Uh, the love of men for other men in 13.34 and 15.19, and then uh, the love of men for Jesus in 842 and 1627. Obviously, this is all in the footnotes. So if anyone wants to like 
open up all of these passages and dig into this deeper, uh, check out the footnote. All those references will be there. So hopefully you weren't trying to like write that down. And and I can, you know, I can, I can appreciate all this stuff, but I do feel like I could go to every single one of these instances and give my own reasoning case for why there is a distinction. I feel like it's a little arbitrary to say these are used interchangeably when there are good reasons why it may not be used interchangeably and good reasons why it would change. Again, that's my own personal opinion. You can completely disagree with me. I just, I, I, okay, go ahead. What's, what's the next issue? And I don't know if John is much of one for rhyming, but I do wonder like in these passages where uh, it's like uh, a similar thing, but it's in completely different place. Like, is he, is he making some kind of wordplay? Is he doing some kind of mm-hmm. Septuagint yep. Remez work? Like there's all sorts of reasons he could, you know, change the word from passage to passage. There sure is. When it's within a single passage, that's, I think, where it's like, what is he doing if he's not making a distinction? Okay. Amen, Brent Billings. Amen. Point number two in the footnote. If, as seems probable, the original conversation took place in Aramaic or Hebrew, there would not have been any difference expressed because both Aramaic and Hebrew have only one basic word for love, which is not what I was taught in youth group. So I don't know know about my youth group upbringing. which I'm fine with the larger point that's made at the end there. I'm not okay with the reasoning of like, well, this is irrelevant because it's not what he was speaking. Yeah, but it's not what the inspired record is in. The, the inspired record, the word of God record, is in Greek. So I just, that, that whole point is completely asinine to me and should be discarded, nevertheless. In the Septuagint, both agape and phileo are used to translate the same Hebrew word for love, although agape is more frequent. It is significant that in the Syriac version of the New Testament, only one verb is used to translate uh, everything in in this John 21 passage. Syriac is very similar linguistically to Palestinian Aramaic. That is a parenthetical note in the footnote. That is not, I don't know anything about Syriac or Palestinian Aramaic. <laughs> And it is a good. I mean, that one is a good. Uh, that one. That one is a good one. I mean, that. Uh, uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna ad- admit that I feel like I kind of my case went backwards a couple steps, but I'm still ahead. <laughs> well, and it is interesting. Like, uh, there are a lot of different translations of the Bible, and like knowing their context and what their language is like. Like, there's there's so much to know about these, and like, what are the choices that they're making in the Syriac? What do those mean? How did they understand it? So like, there's no easy way to pick this apart. You really have to know what you're doing with this stuff. So uh, point number three, Peter's answers to the question asked with agape are yes, even though he answers with phileo. If he is being asked to love Jesus on a higher or more spiritual level, his answers give no indication of this. And one would be forced to say in order to maintain a consistent distinction between the two verbs that Jesus finally concedes defeat and accepts only the lower form of love, which is all that Peter is capable of offering. Thus, You it want seems- to talk about a horrible, <laughs> horrible take. That is the worst part of that entire footnote. Even worse than the second point. Like, like that's the only way to frame it. I mean, I just framed it a moment ago in a completely different way and acknowledged all the differences. But apparently the only way to frame it is how they just he concedes defeat. And and it doesn't fit with our systematic theology. And so that, boy, which that that is where our translation goes sideways. When we start translating according to our theology rather than theologizing according to good translation, we have now crossed a line that I am horribly uncomfortable with. So whenever this footnote's like, well, this can't be true because that would just make it a bad theological idea. A, there are a million ways to frame this so that it doesn't have that problem. But B, that is the worst logic when it comes to translation and understanding word study. But 
nevertheless, go ahead. Yeah, the footnote just ends with like, uh, you know, this this all proves our point, and so we haven't made any attempt to distinguish between the two words in our translation. Whew, man, um, but 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 having voiced all my frustration and my passionate opinion, I will absolutely concede as I did a moment ago. This debate is a super good one. Um, obviously, the consensus does not land where I land, and I'm not going to hang my hat on any major doctrines here. That may, It's just how I choose to, I like to read this. I do, personally, like to read this story where Jesus is coming to Peter and making him grapple with his own guilt and shame and conviction and and failure, and he's saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, well, you know I like you. Yeah, but do you love me? Well, no, you, you know you know that I like you, Peter, but do you even like me? And his point with every single one of these is, Peter, it's good enough. Even if you fail me, Peter, even if you can't agape me, like I think about Abraham and the blood path. Abraham's afraid to put his toe in the blood. So God walks through him. Yeah, Peter, I know. I know you feel like a failure. I know that you that you know your love will be imperfect. I know that you know that your love is not going to be agape love, and that's good enough. Even if you fillet me, Peter, I still got work for you to do. Even if you fillet me, even if you like me, there's still it's it's good enough. It's good enough, Peter. And maybe we do. Maybe we do have some deep theological problem with what Marty just said. I find a poetic, um, gracious, merciful embrace in that. Jesus says. Peter, do you love me? And he's he's struggling. And Peter, want, I mean, I, I can imagine Jesus wanting Peter to say, yes, I do love you. But he sees him struggle. Peter, do you love me? He sees him struggle and says, Peter, do you even like me? Because that's enough. Like, if that's all you got to give me on this beach, that's enough. Uh, and that's how I read that. Now, maybe those words are completely interchangeable. And all Jesus does is straightforward restore Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Maybe that's all that there is to. It's less poetic and compelling to me, but I'll give it to you. And the point still remains the same. Our takeaway is the same. We have the restoration of Peter, the the welcoming him back into the mission of God. Anyway, I digress. Do with that as you will. I feel like there's a like John has a reason for choosing the words that he chooses. I'm that's just my it's just where I'm gonna default to. So that was my rant, Brent. I don't know where we're at in the passage, but uh what should we talk about to go on from here? Well, so I, I did forget one one point on the uh lamb and sheep thing. So the first time he says, Feed my lambs, oh, feed yes. his Bosco. Okay. The second time he says, uh the NIV translates it, take care. The uh, NET okay. uses yes. shepherd, shepherd my sheep. Okay. And that's yep. poimon, I, I, whatever it is, poimano, something like that. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, my sheep. And then the third time he says feed. So he's back to Bosco, but he's on sheep. He's still probata there. So uh, each, each one of those is the first, first and second questions are the same as far as Jesus's question and Peter's answer. But then what Jesus says to do at the end of that is uh, completely different. And then the third one, when Jesus switches to phileo, he mixes the two and he says, feed my sheep. Yep. So then the question is, who are the sheep and who are the lambs? And yep. uh, one other thing that the NET pointed out in the footnotes is in Jesus' first question, do you love me more than these? Who are these? And what is he 
what is he talking about? So I've always thought, which is their third possibility and what they land on. Sure. And they, they translate it. Do you love me more than these do? As in, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Uh, That's how I've always uh, thought of it. Mm, um, mm, but they point out. Not in love with that. You're not in love with that? Nope. <laughs> well, Okay, so that's that's always what I've thought of it. But here they have two other possibilities. So uh, the first one, they say, they say that the um, uh, tauton or whatever these, the word for these, it it says it should be understand under, understood as a neuter pronoun, which I don't know where they're getting that in Blue Letter Bible. It says that the the it's a masculine pronoun. So I don't know, I don't know what's going on there, <laughs> but. Their first possibility is that Jesus is referring to the fishing gear, his boat, the oh, nets. I think they're getting closer. I think that's a horrible idea, but I think they're getting closer. Yeah, I mean, they ultimately, um, I mean, they ultimately set that aside. But I thought that was really interesting because you know earlier in the chapter we see Peter is like, you know what, I'm just going to go fishing, <laughs> and so then that flavors this like Jesus is saying, Simon, do you do you actually? want to fish? Like, do you, is that really what you want for your life? I like, I thought I called you out of that. I thought I gave you a higher purpose. Sure. Um, yeah. And then uh, man, and you phrased it a whole lot better. You're almost winning me over the way that you're poetically putting it. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know what's going on with the Greek. If it is actually neuter, that would make more sense for it to work that way. Um, and then in that case, the, the lambs and the sheep would just be the, you know, the people that Jesus taught him to fish for rather than the fish. All right. So, so here's my, here's my hunch that I didn't want to talk about cause it's only a hunch and I'm not even sure I like it, but now that you've drug it out of me, um, that's what I'm here, here here's, for. <laughs> <laughs> here's my, here's my unthought through thought. Now I also would assume that our insights are probably in the text, Brent, like these references, like you, you hinted at re, like a remez earlier. I wonder what remez could be here, what John could be. I'm betting that our insight probably lies there, to be honest. I want to know where this is at in the text between lambs and sheep and these references and these, you know, whatever. But I have always, see, when I had kind of forgotten about the whole, do you love me more than these? What's just happened is the miraculous catch of fish, Right. And we've talked about that before, this 153 fish, which symbolized what, Brent? Can you remember? Uh, There's the Gentiles. The Gentiles. And that comes from a Jewish Midrash, 153 leaves on Jonah. I believe it was Akiva that referenced the gematria. The gematria is the mathematical calculation of the value of a word. He talked about the... Um, uh, the the prophecy in Ezekiel, I believe it was Ezekiel forty seven, where the fishermen stand on the banks of the river from uh, Engedi to Edenglaim, and the the gematria of Edenglaim was one hundred and fifty three, and so that's the number of fish in the sea. Jerome is an early church father that references this idea, so this idea was like known in the early uh, Christian community, in the early Jewish community. We we know that. Think think what you will about gematria, like it can get pretty bonkers, but it, it can right here in the gospel. John, we have this really weird number of fish. Right. And so that is the explanation for it. Whether, you know, yeah. wherever you take that, like that is the number that we have here in our inspired text. And so what what did John understand when he used that number? Right. And there's objective presence of that 153 in Jewish Midrash at this time. So anyway, so if that is the case where they've just had like this at least from a literary perspective, you just had the story of 153 Gentiles. I've always thought of that, hearing that as 
do you love me more than these being this havara of Jewish disciples? Because what I'm calling you, Peter, is to feed sheep and lambs from a greater flock. And so I, I mean, obviously my reasoning here between lambs and sheep is just straight up Western logic, which is why I hate this. But I wonder if Jesus is like, hey, I know you denied me, but do you love me? Yes, I like you. Okay, well then, then feed my lambs. Take care of those, take care of those, you know, feed those baby Christians, those outsiders, those Gentiles, those Okay, okay, but do you love me? Well, you know I like you. Okay, well then shepherd my sheep. Shepherd, take care of those. Oh, okay. Do you even like me? Yes, you, yes, I, 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 I like you. Then, then that's enough. Feed my sheep. Peter, take care of all of them. The new ones, the young ones, the old ones, the inside ones, the outside ones. Peter, if you, if you like me, if you love me, if you're willing to take your broken fill yourself and put it and put it to use i can use you to feed all of them because i need to reach jews and i need to reach gentiles and i that's how that's my hunch oh my gosh Marty. the lamb sheep thing okay so if the lambs are the gentiles he said feed my lambs but if the sheep are the jews he says feed them and shepherd them right correct man that's a crazy. That's a stupid, crazy hunch. It's probably not. It's probably not good. But anyway, that's that, that's those are you, you drug it out of me. There you go. That's what my that's my current hunch. But he, I, I mean, he is the he is the head of the whole church. But he stays in Jerusalem, doesn't he? Uh, he he'll move for, away from the church. Will move to Antioch, and then and then Peter seems to be somewhat. James is the one that stays in Jerusalem. But yes. oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, but then, but I mean, really, it's Paul and John who are. Working more with the gen. I mean, Peter does have yep. that encounter with the sheep, man. Okay. Yeah, Peter <laughs> Peter is, and Paul will call Peter um, the apostle to the Jews, and he's the apostle, and Paul will say, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. So right. there is that relationship that would work, but oh, I digress. Mm. Well, that is the possibility that the NET puts forth as their second option oh, in that footnote. Okay. Do, you, do you love me more than you love these disciples? And so that would... yeah. You know, yep. Fall, there you go. Fall in line there. So, well, I got nothing else on this passage. I don't know. There's, and apparently, there's a whole lot more to talk about because you know, books could be written. John says, <laughs> and 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 you know, there wouldn't be enough. There wouldn't. Well, there wouldn't be enough room for the books, but uh, that's not going to stop you from trying, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, October twenty seventh. Here we are. Uh, your book comes out. Oh man, three a little over three months from now. Theoretically, assuming that date doesn't move. As long as the date holds. We're recording this a little bit before October, but uh, as long as everything is still on track, it's set for February 7th. So we'll see. The whole process has been super intimidating. Never quite been through anything like this or seeing things like the the cover art and all that stuff come to be a reality, which I am in, I am in love with, with the cover of this book. Like I thought it was going to be one of the things I was never going to like. I was going to hate it, and I just love what the team at Nav Press. It's just a sexy cover. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, if you haven't seen it already, you can uh, you can check that out. It is actually available for pre order. So um, I don't know if I'll 
I don't, I don't know exactly how I'll link this in the show notes. Maybe I'll just point people to your website, Marty. And, and sure. from there, we'll have all sorts of pre-order links so you can pre-order it wherever you like to pre-order things. If you even do such things, maybe this will be your first time pre-ordering a book. I think it will be my first time. Well, I've definitely done a few. All right. Uh, anything else you want to say about that or John? I mean, man, like uh, we're, we're not really... I, I, I said that we were considering the conclusion John writes for his account. But actually what we're doing in the next uh, couple of episodes is is going back and like looking at the big picture of John. So we're not we're not quite done with John yet. We've got a couple more episodes. Yeah, I do want to take a, a larger kind of meta level um, conversation about about John and just kind of talk about like what are some of the the linguistic or the, or the literary devices that are being used, but potentially what do scholars talk about? And are now that we've seen all of it, I could have done it at the beginning, but I didn't want to like, you know, poison the well or, or taint the waters of, you know, what we would experience. So I kind of waited till the end. Like I, I gave some of those pieces like book of hours, the book of signs, book of glory. Like we talked about some of these things, but uh, I wanted to wait till we got to the end so that now that we've seen it all and experienced it all, we can go back and uh, and consider some things. So that's what we're going to do for the next uh, at least one episode, maybe maybe two. We'll see. Yes. So as much as this feels a little bit anticlimactic, we're not, we're not done yet. So <laughs> more John, more John to come. Uh, you know, it is our our like biggest request for things to cover verse by verse through John. And we're giving you even more. than We that. did it. <laughs> we did it. Yes. Verse by verse plus, something like that. That's right. Um, all right. Well, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. Go to martysolomon.com to check out his book. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. Uh, you can find more details about this podcast at baymontestablishment.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast this week. We'll talk to you again soon.